Hey guys, Jim Cox, and I'm here today with an interview with Robin Wilson. She's uh, an entrepreneur and um, really has done remarkable work in terms of building a business around sustainability, and she's she's got a really great background that we're looking forward to sharing. I also have on Jonathan uh, Cloud, who is... Um, with Possible Planet, and we're going to uh, be chatting a bit and uh, look forward to learning more from each of them. So, uh, thanks for again for taking the time to uh, chat today, guys. It's going to be great. It I is. Look forward to hearing more. Awesome. So, uh, Jonathan, uh, before we start, tell us a little bit about uh, Possible Planet and kind of the work you do there. Right. Well, thank you uh, for the opportunity to do this. And uh, Possible Planet was originally incorporated as the Center for Regenerative Community Solutions. And our primary focus is uh, finding new ways of financing clean energy improvements, uh, renewables, uh, and ecosystem restoration basically uh, focused on the, the financial aspects of the clean economy. And, of course, this is increasingly important as we address the issues that we're facing today. And uh, we're very pleased to be able to co-host or co-sponsor these conversations with uh people who are really doing incredible work in this field. So, awesome. That's all I need to say for the moment. Awesome. Um, Robin, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you, um, you know, how did you become an entrepreneur? I mean, it's it's kind of a mythical thing these days, but um, I think it really deserves a, a really in-depth examination. as a company this wow. year. And when I look back at, I call the ebbs and flows of this journey, I remember the day that I left my corporate job after an IPO, which provided some of the windfall money to uh, seed capital. And uh, how do you create an idea that other people buy into that helps the world and that remains authentic to who you are and your vision. And I remember that day just saying, you know, who am I? Mm. And one of the key elements is that <laughs> that I remember is being the allergic kid, the kid with allergies and asthma growing up. And at that time it was rare. And so you're the kid that people are, are wondering why, um, you know, it's whether it's food or pets or pollen or whatever. I had all of it, so it's what they call panallergic. And uh, the beauty of my life is, and I call it the Malcolm Gladwell tipping point moment, I was lucky to be a child who grew up in Austin, Texas with a hippie doctor who said uh, in a holistic way that you can raise a strong child, meaning exercise, healthy diet, or you can raise a child on strong medicine. And my parents listened. And unlike other children, I had that healthy uh, outlook from an early age. 
Whole Foods was also founded in Austin. So organic food was not frowned upon. Mm. Um, it was affordable. And so those two elements coupled with an opportunity to work in high school and college for the Lower Colorado River Authority, which uh, was focused on, um, you know, managing uh, a waterway. So all of the sustainability issues, what's going to happen to wildlife? What, what happens if the coal plant continues to operate? What is going to happen with uh, power peaks and valleys during the summer and in the winter? And so I learned about sustainability and I learned about uh, demand side management. And so that tipping point, fast forward, when you're given an opportunity to be an entrepreneur, it all sort of comes together and you build a business that uh, that provides products for people who have allergies and asthma, that educates people through books, lectures, and television, and more importantly, um, provides everything at an affordable price point so more people who have um, issues and who believe in sustainability, they can afford those things. That's awesome. I, I didn't know that uh, Whole Foods was founded in Austin until you uh, until you had told me that. So, I mean, you're really uh, fortunate in terms of kind of the uh, the different um, paths crossing. It's uh, what Malcolm Gladwell says in his book, The Tipping Points. If you think about Bill Gates, Steve uh, Jobs, they were all in places where people did computer programming. So, hmm. by the time everyone knew about computers, they already had 10,000 hours of computer programming under their belt. Hmm. Um, if you imagine 10,000 bites of food, uh, I knew how to keep myself healthy. Hmm. And if you think about uh, sustainability um, in the early days, there's the green movement, which was, I, I say that almost a marketing term, because eco-friendly is really what we're trying to do. We all live in this ecosystem together. And what can we do to our planet? Um, whether it's reclaiming vintage furniture <laughs> and painting it so it doesn't go into a landfill. Mm. Or, or uh, using material that can be recycled instead of one-use packaging. Those are all simple solutions um, and then you think about your home as your ecosystem. And my company, Robin Wilson Home, has been designed for small places to very large homes to uh, what I call second homes to commercial and hospitality spaces. And one of the things we often ask is, how do you live? Because if someone has a lot of friends and family over and there are, um, I, I'll call it, allergies in the, in the neighborhood <laughs> or in the town, mm. um, you can do simple things, whether it's your linens, your bed coverings, uh, the low to no VOC and stains that go on both cabinetry and walls, uh, flooring. You know, some people, if you remember, there was an era when people wanted bamboo floors, but there's different strands of bamboo, some which are hardier and some which are quite soft but it is a sustainable plant. And cork is another example. Um, even linoleum, many people think of linoleum as uh, you know, bad, 
but if you have original linoleum, which has linseed oil and mm. uh, it, it's not plastic, for lack yeah. of a better word, yeah. that is a sustainable product because early linoleum from even the 30s, if you if you re-glaze uh, it, it's just as beautiful. It's not plastic, though. And mm. those are things that most people aren't aware of. It well, doesn't off-gas, you know. Yeah. Well, even a lot of carpets uh, are petroleum-based as well, so it's it's not like you avoid it, avoid linoleum by going to carpets, uh, by you yeah. know, avoiding the yeah. oil. So. And so, right, so one of the things that we've done in, in building our business, Robin Wilson Home, over the 20 years, is I th- I'd say the key thing is educating people that eco-friendly can be beautiful. Mm. Because when we started... Um, you know, people were like, oh, that's going to be ugly. It's going to be beige, beige, and beige. And then all of a sudden, um, you see the turning point where everyone starts saying, well, you know, I'm concerned. My child is wheezing and sneezing when they come in the house. We go on vacation, and they're fine. And that's when people started recognizing that indoor air quality can be sometimes six to eight times worse because of the number of chemicals and products that are in the home. And so when you educate people and you say the simple question, would you raise your child in a chemical factory? Um, when you say that, of course, the answer is no. And then you say, well, okay, you have a vinyl shower curtain. There has phthalates, which are um, chemicals that can influence your endocrine system. Why not change instead of a vinyl shower curtain? Why not get a nylon shower curtain? They're like, nylon? They're like, yeah, that's what they use in hospitals and hotels, uh, you know, an augmented version of pantyhose. <laughs> mm. And all of a sudden people are like, oh, and I, and then you tell them, oh, and it doesn't build up mold like a vinyl shower curtain. Oh, and it's the same price. Oh, I'll get nylon. It's simple education like that. Yeah. And really, like you said, that's the key. It's all about education. And But the, the reality is most people don't know what questions to ask just to start that journey, right? Yes, yes. So I wrote two books. Um, the second book was a number one Amazon bestseller. Uh, it came out in 2015 when we did a national book tour, and it's called Clean Design, Wellness for Your Lifestyle. And that book is uh, a primer. So it's for a person who knows nothing. And uh, so someone who really knows about things might find it quite, you know, elementary. If you know nothing about on how to keep your home cleaner, your ecosystem. It's a great starter point. And simple tips in there, like toothpaste cleans crayon off the walls. Mm. It also cleans tile. Um, if you have a can of Coca-Cola and you put it in your toilet, you can eliminate that toilet ring around your toilet. We've done like, that, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell people, like, you can put a toxic chemical at nose level to your child, you can use some toothpaste, might take a little bit of elbow yeah. grease, but, but yeah. you're not putting a toxic chemical at their level. Then all of a sudden, it's those simple solutions that really make people smile. Well, the, the frightening thing when you're, you're talking about using Coca-Cola to clean the, the toilet bowl is the effect when you think about that acid going into the human body and the effect that it has. And um, oh, yes. it, it's <laughs> like, what in the hell are we really doing? So. Well, the same the same premise. If you have an auto and you pour Coca Cola on your battery connector um, mm. because it's corroded, yeah. Coca Cola will also take 
the battery acid off. So I tell people when you think about that, water is a good solution. Juice, <laughs> but maybe you want to stay away from certain beverages. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Jonathan, On a daily basis, at least. <laughs> yeah. Jonathan, jump in here. That's awesome. That's awesome. We'll uh, definitely include those links in the uh, in the description. What um, one of the things that we talked about when uh, when we initially uh, met Robin was uh, your story was a uh, oh now I can't think of the term Horatio Alger story. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. most people, I would say 95% of people don't even 
know what or who uh, Horatio Alger was. Uh, I only do because I collect old books, but could you share a little bit about that? Sure. You know, as, as a, a woman of color um, in America, uh, you know, the reality is that I am a descendant of slaves. Um, not both sides of the family, but one side. And um, one thing that I say is four generations ago, I would have been a slave or maybe a free person, but limited in where I could travel and what I could do with my life. My um, father's father was a sharecropper. My father was a bus driver, like Greyhound, or uh, the company's name though was Kerrville, and he was the, I believe, second black bus driver in the state of Texas for interstate travel. And he... Um, was the third in Austin, Texas, city bus driver. Um, and so he became a member of the Teamsters, right? So all of a sudden there's this great wage that he has and benefits and insurance and all the other things. So again, another tipping point moment because of um, he didn't go to college. He had a great job though, um, a middle America blue collar job that paid a good wage. and. Um, through that, I uh, was funded with, you know, great education, private school early on, and then um, public school, um, became a National Merit Scholar, semifinalist um, in high school, which gave me a full ride to the University of Texas, Austin. And uh, you can imagine that, what that was like. You know, my mom's side of the family was a bit more fortunate, probably a little bit more mixture in the family. So um, they, were, they were free people. But um, the reality is still, she was, and she grew up in the 50s and 60s, which was not such a great time for people of color. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, so imagine Austin, which everyone looks at today as a very liberal bastion, um, Black people had to live on one side of town, and when they got to Congress Avenue, they had to move to the back of the bus. And that history is not often discussed. But my one of my uncles actually has a, a mark on his forehead from an older man who, you know, made sure to remind him of his place when he raised his cane and hit him on the head mm. because he was nine years old and didn't move to the back of the bus fast So I say the reality is that. I didn't know many of those stories until I was older because one of the things my parents raised me and my brother to do is just to be ourselves. And we were fortunate to be in Austin. And so until I got to college, I sort of, I knew I was, as I call it, a brown person, but I had not experienced overt uh, discrimination. I had heard words that aren't really repeatable, but I hadn't, you know, it's like, oh, that crazy person over there said something really bad. But until, um, again, this is 1987, 88, going to college at UT, which is my hometown in Austin, until that moment when I realized that sororities and fraternities were segregated. There were places you weren't invited, and even if you went, you weren't welcome. Mm. That was the first time in my hometown that I was like, whoa, um, kids from other parts of the state of Texas aren't so open-minded. 
And so, uh, anyway, fast forward, um, I built a career. I moved, I left Texas and moved to Boston and then to New York and built a career that has spent working for Fortune 100 companies to then working at a leading executive search firm where I worked for uh, the financial services sector and one of the managing partners um, in dealing with Fortune 100 banks, boards of directors, etc. And so I got a pretty good Rolodex, <laughs> um, navigated my way through corporate America, and then an IPO occurred in 1999, which gave me this, uh, a great window into um, economic freedom. Mm. I think that very few people have that opportunity, especially given that when I was at that leading executive search firm, I was the first professional of color in the New York office. That was in 1997. So I was lucky to get that IPO moment, but how many other people didn't? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, um, the thing about Horatio Alger, like you just described, is, you know, typically the stories, and there's there's hundreds of books about this kind of a character, where they literally start at the bottom delivering papers or doing whatever, you know, tasks are at the bottom of the ladder of a company, and then basically working their way up through the ladder to eventually become ultimately successful and rewarded for that. Um, and you, right. you saw that yourself. One of the additional challenges, though, especially as you become self-employed, is there's a whole different skill set of skills that are needed to be self-employed and an entrepreneur. And so how, yeah. would you, how would you say that you learned those skills that are different from just being an employee to actually being an entrepreneur? father on my mother's side, well, one, two, three generations back, they were entrepreneurs. Mm. So I remember going to, you know, I hate to use the term counting money, but um, one of them had a parking lot, my great-grandfather. And imagine during the honor, I call it the honor boxes, where people would get uh, parking slot number 33, and then they would go to the honor box and put, you know, 50 cents of quarters in or something. So at the end of a day or the end of a couple of days, you would come and collect change. And when the money was collected, um, what would happen is we little grandkids would, I don't know if you remember the paper sleeves for yeah, change. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, would, we would get all the quarters. half dollar if we, <laughs> if we uh, bagged up all the change in those little paper sleeves and then he could go to the bank and and turn everything in. Mm. And so I remember watching that. My uh, mother's father had a general store. I remember stocking the shelves and dusting. I remember um, going to, I guess it would be Costco today, but it was a grocer supply, and seeing how the price of wholesale became a price at retail. Wow, that's and good. so all those things, again, um, coalesce to, I have this wonderful mantra whenever I speak in front of public audiences, I say that the way to be a successful entrepreneur are three things. And people are like, they always their pen and I say, the 
ABCs, or you're going to have the one, two, three. And they're like, huh? So ABC is, you must have a great attorney, a great bookkeeper, and cash flow. Or you're going to have a dollar twenty-three mm. in your bank account. Yep. And I know about that moment because <laughs> when I was an early entrepreneur, which we can all talk about the ebbs and flows of being an entrepreneur, when I was an early entrepreneur. One year, I said, "Oh, I'm going to get my books to balance at zero, right? I don't owe anything." <laughs> um, my receivable, everything's paid for. But I forgot to put a line in there to pay myself. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, you get to the ATM and you have a dollar twenty-three mm. <laughs> in your bank account. And you're like, wait a second. And, you know, all your employees are going on their vacations and going shopping. And you're like, wait a second. And that's when I realized, you know, there's a different way to be an entrepreneur because you're not guaranteed that paycheck. Yeah, and I would say it's actually it's it's really tough today given COVID and uh, there was just an article uh, posted. Uh, I think uh, a Yelp study said that uh, half of all businesses that were temporarily closed have actually permanently closed as a result of the shutdown. So it's a massive loss of entrepreneurs um, to the economy and. You know, yeah. hopefully things will get started again, but, but there's a toll that that takes. And, you know, we need more people to be entrepreneurs, but it, it just takes so much risk. And, and really, like you said, the background in terms of learning the skill sets to, to be able to be successful. Right. Right. I just think that it's not even just COVID. It's, there's, when you think about being an entrepreneur and you look at all of the tax documents you're required to file, government forms you're required to produce, and it's like every quarter you have to basically stop your business for a day to make sure you're in compliance with XYZ. And then you have to make, it, it's like there's a lot of steps forward and a lot of steps backward because of regulatory issues. and. You know, I remember at one point being, again, early entrepreneur moment, um, not being advised, being, okay, being told that, oh, you could do your payroll on such and such banking system. It's really cheap. So, of course, you're like, oh, I have to pay paychecks, you know, $50 a month. I'm going to go to the, you know, free or the $9.99 version. But what they don't tell you is that paychecks pays all of your payroll taxes. Paychecks take care of all the drama yeah. behind the scenes. And the 999 version, you just paid people, but you're supposed to put money aside for whatever federal state taxes exist. All of a sudden you're like, wow, I'm saving all this money. <laughs> As I say, and then the music begins, it says, song, song, song. Yeah. And then, you know, <laughs> one day the IRS is like, well, you owe. And you're like, what? And so those are all things, again, there's no real good handbook right now for an entrepreneur. There never has been. Um, but it's even worse because there's a lot of noise yeah. about what people can do for you. And 
you know, some of these insurance companies that say, oh, we can insure you for $5 a month, but they don't tell you that the, you know, the copay or deductible is so high that it's almost as though you, you don't have any insurance until you have a catastrophic event. Yeah. So people, people are struggling, and, you know, 20 years ago, nobody was really trying to be a brand. Today, everyone's trying to be a brand. I don't know how easy it is to rise above the, uh, the ocean, as one would say, mm-hmm. to get to the sky. And they don't have the they don't have the debt load that a doctor carries for that education. That's right. Yeah, so they're they're cash flow positive right. a lot faster. Yeah. That's right. They might have to um, you know, pay money for trade school and, and an apprenticeship or something of that nature. But if more and more people in the education system that, you know, do you like to tinker with things? And Jane or John says, Yes, I do. They say, well, let's, let me show you how to be an electrician or to do electronics. I think we could rebuild the manufacturing sector in this country. Mm-hmm. And I think also there would be people that rather than getting a college degree and then dropping out, they would be mesmerized by putting cars together. They would be mesmerized by, you know, designing new plumbing systems and electrical systems that our country could come back in a way um, as a tech leader 
uh, a manufacturing leader. I think that our education system keeps telling kids, oh, you have to go to college to be successful. And I'm like, maybe it should be find out what you love, make your passion what you do, and if it becomes trade schools, it, you know, it becomes um, engineering schools that are not engineering degrees, but technical schools, I guess is the right thing. I'm talking legitimate technical schools where someone, for example, I believe in Germany, they can be a, a kid who likes cars and they can go to the Ferrari, um, to, the, to the Mercedes-Benz factory and start as an apprentice and work their way up until they're like designing this cool car. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's how we need to start doing things again. Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, one of the things that you mentioned is uh, access for minorities to capital, and clearly, if if there were more access to capital, we would it would really be kind of a renaissance, not just not just for minority communities, but for the economy as a whole. One of the things that I would say that is that the Fed, the Federal Reserve, over the past year has really kind of embraced the idea that they need to do more in terms of holding banks accountable for lending to minority businesses. And the uh, the echoes of kind of the injustices of what happened with the recent PPP loans um, that did not flow to minority communities and really... Oh, wait, may I interrupt you? Sure. I got $1,000. I got $1,000 hmm. <laughs> from PPP. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy, and and then corporations are getting millions, and it, it's it really is, and and a lot of it was explained that well, minorities don't have banking relationships. Well, there's a reason for that. So clearly, at least the Fed is at this point pushing them to move farther, faster which is a first step, but we need to keep up the pressure, obviously. Well, the reality is there are fair housing laws, which some people are trying to obliterate yeah. by saying, oh, people can choose, you know, and it's like, okay, so we're going to go back to redlining. <laughs> no matter what happens, if someone's not held accountable, they'll do the easy button, which is whatever is whatever any bias they might have. They go back to redlining. <laughs> then what happens? Mm-hmm. In a macro way. Yeah. Um, but then there's no form of fair housing or fair lending, and it's not lending; it's fair investing. Mm-hmm. There's no measure or uh, focus on that. And people who are entrepreneurs, I will tell you, 100% across the board. If you're a true entrepreneur and you've made it to five years, you've gone through something. Yeah. yeah. You haven't paid yourself at some point. You haven't, you've been the uh, copy machine person, you know, fixing it. You've had to get some office supplies from Staples at the last minute. You've been your shipping department. Someone called in sick, you had to open the doors. If you've been an entrepreneur for five years, you've been through something. Yeah. Most businesses uh, years, statistically fail after three, so... The fact that you right. make it to five right. is a is a feat. Right. At 20 years, I should have no trouble going to some VC or private equity firm or bank yeah. and saying, hi, I would like to partner with you, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? I can't even do that now. <laughs> mm. So 
why would I have a strong relationship with my bank? Yeah. Why? Because they don't help. Hmm. You know, if Bank of America, and I'm saying their name, if Bank of America got real, when I walk in, they would say, oh, your firm has generated revenue, you're in Tuna, you have products that are sold, you have revenue coming in on a daily basis when you sleep. Hmm. Okay. We're going to give you a line of credit because it's not going to be a big one. We're going to, we're going to manage you for a year, two years, at five or $10,000. So you make that at least every month. Okay. Now, you're doing well. We'll raise that line of credit if you want us to. But I don't even get that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so why should I believe yeah. that a bank has my best interest at heart? No doubt. No doubt. So with with what's going on in terms of the economy, like what what would you see as the role of entrepreneurship going forward? Is it is it something of the past or is it something where people have to increasingly turn to to become more entrepreneurial or just finding I mean there's entrepreneurs are the only way this country will bounce back. Yeah. I say that deliberately. Entrepreneurism is a mindset. It means we can do this. We, meaning me, you, Jane, who, we can do, we can, you know, design a better mousetrap, whatever it may be. Or within a company, I call it intrapreneurism, when you're working within a company and you're not thinking as an employee solely, but you're saying, wow, they just did that. So maybe it could work this way. So think about like the post-it note, Mm -hmm. right? Whoever was working for 3M that day and saw that this piece of paper didn't really stick well, but wow, it stuck on the wall for two or three days. And then they said, hey, Mr. Boss, I'd like to see if we could package this up and maybe it could be used as a thing. I don't know. And then all of a sudden, the post-it note is born. That's an intrapreneur who is an employee. They're internal to a company. Yeah. And then there's the entrepreneur who is outside of the company. Yeah. An entrepreneur, though, that takes a corporate culture that values insights and change um, within it and... A lot of corporate management is actually runs counter to that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I hope I hope that with this COVID moment, so many people are working from home. They're all trying to figure it out. Where many of us are parents, we're trying to figure it out. <laughs> and if you are clinical right now, this is the right time to say. How do we build a better mousetrap? Hmm. Is it Zoom? Is it uh, what is it? What is what is homeschooling? Mm-hmm. What is uh, working from home? Is it hologram meetings? Is it you know what is it that will make people recognize that you know an eight to five day is great, but for some people it might need to be a ten to two day and then come back to their desk after dinner because mm-hmm. they've got to pick up their kids at two. Yeah. So maybe you'll still get the same eight hours, yeah. but 
maybe it doesn't have to be eight to five. Yeah. Maybe that person goes back to work from seven to eleven, hypothetically. Hmm. Their other spouse might be home by that time. And now they're actually on West Coast time. And now you've got this global company yeah. doing things in a different way. So your your business is and a your bit go ahead, Jonathan. Okay, but I mean, to push the reset button, we have to have something to reset it into. And where does that intellectual capital come from for that reset?
That means our company is working 24 hours a day. Hmm. Well, there's probably a thousand other directions that we could go, and uh, and from like I said before, we'll we'll have to do other conversations. But I think we need to to wrap it up today. Um, if people want to reach out to you, Robin, uh, how can they contact you? Sure. My website is www.robin, R-O-B-I-N, Wilson, W-I-L-S-O-N, home, robinwilsonhome.com. Awesome. And um, Jonathan, how can people reach out to you? Thanks again, guys, for taking the time to chat. Um, I know it was a, a long afternoon, but uh, I really think it'll be beneficial to a lot of people given uh, kind of where things are today. So thanks again. Thank 